Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial, and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. We are once again socially distancing ourselves from the Eurosport studios, so please forgive us if this recording is a little rough and ready. Felix Lowe's writing, however, remains as ready as ever. This episode is willingly narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and ably produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode, we rode the last rain-soaked Paris-Roubaix with Johan Museo as he made history by winning his third cobblestone, and youngster Tom Bonin came of age among the muddy mayhem, despite being booed by his own fans. In this episode, we're riding with Frank van den Broeke for what would turn out to be the pinnacle of the Belgian's troubled career, a performance of power and panache that delivered his 1999 victory at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. So dominant was Vandenbroeke's La Doyenne showing that spring that the question had to be asked, was this the second coming of Eddie Merckx? Charming and charismatic, yet fragile and intense, the tall, dashing, bleached blonde Vandenbroeke was immensely self-confident. But he was also racked by self-doubt, a man his biographer describes as either zero or 100, nothing in between. Having joined French team Cofidis in 1999, the 24-year-old showman had 48 pro wins to his name going into that year's Liège-Bastogne-Liège, a race he not only predicted he'd win, but explained to the media exactly when and how he would deliver his decisive blows. But in what would become one of the saddest and most dramatic downfalls in the sport's history, only a handful of victories followed. Vandenbroeke's first major classics win would also be his last, as a plethora of addictions, cocaine, amphetamines, sleeping pills, alcohol and fame combined to turn a prodigious talent inside out on the front pages of the Belgian tabloids. Just 10 years after his breakthrough victory, the hottest Belgian prospect since the cannibal was dead. Flanders and Wallonia embraced the new baby child and hugged him to death. He would never live up to the high expectations, read the writer's obituary in the Dutch newspaper De Volkskrant following Vandenbroeke's death in 2009. Another decade had passed, 
But Vandenbroek is emphatic, exquisite, era-defining attacks on Le Redoute and the Côte de Saint-Nicolas remain unparalleled. No one has risen to the occasion in quite the same resounding way as the remarkable yet vulnerable Vandenbrucker did that sunny April day in 1999. And it's unlikely that anyone else will ever have the means to do so. Here's the tale of a fallen, flawed champion. Entering what seemed, at the time, the biggest one-day race of the year, fans were braced for a showdown between the two standout riders of the spring, the double champion Michele Bartoli of Italy and his informed challenger Vandenbrucker, who was making all the right noises. Seeking a third successive victory in Liège, 28-year-old Bartoli had won La Flèche Wallonne earlier in the week and seemed the odds-on favourite for La Doyenne. Vandenbrucker, however, had notched five wins so far that season, most notably in Umloop Het Volt and at Paris-Nice. He'd come runner-up to Peter van Pietergem in the Tour of Flanders before entering Paris-Roubaix on a whim and impressing with a top 10 finish. He was absolutely flying from the word go, says Daniel Freib, the last journalist to interview Vandenbrucker before his sudden death in 2009. Lured by a large contract and the promise of top dog status by Cofidis, the Belgian had left Mapai, where Freib had worked for a year while studying in Italy, for the French team, where he had hit the ground running. Vandenbrucker was having the time of his life and was pretty much untouchable on a bike for a few months, Freib recalls. The sky was the limit for him. At Mapai, he was a star among many and part of his bravura and bluster had been obscured. But at Cofidis, he was very much the main man. Such was his confidence that Vandenbrucker had long indicated how the 1999 edition of Liège Baston Liège would play out. He would shake the tree on the mystical Côte de la Redoute before finishing the job on Côte de Saint-Nicolas. La Redoute is always a key point in deciding the race, says Freib. There had been a series of Lieges that had been decided there. Bartoli had won two, having launched crucial attacks on the climb, so it seemed like that was always going to be the crucial point in those years. But Vandenbrucker was even more specific. After his softening attack on La Redoute, the cocky Belgian even gave a house number corresponding to the point where he would attack again on the urban climb of Saint-Nicolas, not only revealing his intentions to his rivals, but potentially opening himself up to ridicule from fans and media alike. It hadn't been the first time Vandenbrucker had made such breezy predictions, but he had never done so on such a huge platform with the entire world watching. This borderline insolence and huge confidence from a very young age reminded me of what Muhammad Ali used to do, saying that this or that guy would go down in the fourth round, says Rouleur editor Andy McGrath. But in a boxing match, there are only two people in the ring. When it's Liège Baston Liège, 250 kilometers and over 160 riders at the start, with so many variables, even if you are the favorite, he was setting himself up for a fall. To carry it out was perfect, a remarkable display he could never live up to ever again. When asked by television reporter on the morning of the race whether he was going to win, Van den Brucker, a rare bilingual French and Dutch speaker, just smiled and said, well, I hope Bartoli finishes second. If his script was going to be believed, Vandenbrucker would deny his Italian rival the opportunity to become the fourth rider to win three successive editions of Liège, and he'd do so with an attack at number 256, around five kilometres from the finish. It was certainly a mouthwatering prospect, according to McGrath, who describes Bartoli and Vandenbrucker as two of the most beautiful bike riders of their generation, as well as being two of the most talented.
On the morning of April 18, 1999, Vandenbrucker breakfasted on a large bowl of porridge, three slices of toast with blueberry jam, and some banana bread. Some years later, he would admit that he had a little extra help that day, but insisted that it made no difference. Everybody did it, and so did I. It's the truth, and it does not diminish the value of my victories, Vandenbrucker confessed in his autobiography, I'm Not God, in 2008. It was a fair race, a fair result. I didn't do anything the second, third, fourth, fifth place riders on that day didn't. We all fought with the same weapons. The 85th edition of La Doyenne was largely unremarkable until Frenchman Laurent Jalibert broke clear of the peloton with 94 kilometres remaining. Runner-up behind Bartoli the two previous years, Jalibert was very much the third name on the billing, although the 30-year-old clearly thought his only chance lay in anticipating the expected showdown between the two favourites and getting out early. Wearing the French national champion's jersey, Jalabert rode clear with the Italian Stefano Garzelli before the Côte de Rosier. Jalabert soon dropped Garzelli, who had finished fourth earlier in the season at Milan-San Remo, before committing himself to what Sean Kelly described as a silly move that always looked doomed to failure. As the temperature increased and the grey rain clouds parted, Jalabert shed his jacket, gloves and arm warmers, but his gap never crept far above the minute mark. With the peloton whittled down to 48 riders, Mappe sent their men to the front to work for Italian duo Bartoli and Paolo Bettini ahead of Le Redoute, with Vandenbrucker's Cofidis eventually making their presence known. The race was about to kick off. Tension was in the air as the riders hit the start of the 1.6km climb, with all the big names still in contention. Commentating on the race for the international feed alongside Phil Liggett, Paul Sherwin set the scene. The big names are moving to the front. Axel Merckx has recovered from his earlier crash, but now taking the reins is the red, white and blue of the champion of Holland and also Frank Vandenbrucker, the man that the Belgians are hoping is going to become the new Eddie Merckx. The real Merckx's son, Axel, is riding tempo for Mapai to prevent any other attacks while setting one up for his teammate Bartoli, while the likes of Polti's David Rebelin and the aforementioned Dutch champion Michael Bogard of Rabobank look feisty alongside Lampre's world champion Oscar Kamenzind of Switzerland. In the wheel of teammate Merckx, Bartoli seems primed for battle. This is his climb and he's hoping it's going to be his race, says Sherwin. As the gradient ramps up and the crowds become thicker, a certain cofferdice rider edges closer to the front. Watch out now because Frank Vandenbrucker has found the rear wheel of Michele Bartoli, says Liggett. It also looks that Vandenbrucker is going to be interested in what happens over the next few minutes. Looking over his shoulder, Bartoli can see his big rival on his back wheel. Just moments later, the Italian attacks, saying something to Merckx as he passes. Cottoning on, Merckx drifts to the left, boxing in Vandenbrucker by the barriers. The first reaction comes from Bogard, who leads the chase on the steepest part of the climb. The 19% gradient is clearly taking its toll on Bartoli who struggles to put much light between him and his rivals. In fact, says Sherwin, Bartoli is not the Bartoli of last year because he's not opened up as big a gap as he did then. Just as Bogard reels in Bartoli, Vandenbrucker kicks clear of the strung outline of chasers and draws level with the Italian. For 10 exhilarating seconds, the two sprint shoulder to shoulder, both on the drops, as if they are tearing along the Champs-Élysées. 
Look at this, cries Liggett. Van Brucker and Bartoli, two great champions, side by side. They are ripping away from the field. But very soon, it's Van Brucker doing all the ripping. That was an incredible turn up for the books, says Sherwin. It looked like Bartoli was the strongest there, but once Van Brucker accelerated, Bartoli was having difficulty staying on the wheel. Approaching the summit, the camera zooms in on Van Brucker's face. The Belgian looks serene, hardly out of breath as he surges clear in the saddle, looking once over his shoulder to check his progress. It's then that the camera pans onto his chainset, showing that he's still riding in the big ring. It later emerged that Vandenbrucker was pedalling no lower than 42 by 16 up the steepest section of La Redoute. It was a moment of power and grace and beauty that McGrath describes as both absurd and insane. I went to La Redoute to walk up the climb while researching my book on Vandenbrucker, says McGrath. It just gives you a slightly different impression and makes the climb seem even harder than it is. But the fact that Van der Brucker went up Le Redoute in the big ring is absolutely astounding. That attack broke Bartley's spirit. Peddling squares, the Italian was caught by Bogard and his Rabobank teammate Martin Denbacher ahead of the summit. Van der Brucker soon sat up and waited for the chase group, but the damage had been done, certainly when it came to Bartley's morale. Van der Brucker's attack seemed almost gratuitous. He was flexing his muscles but it also dealt this killer psychological blow to Bartoli, not only in the context of that race, but in some respects, in Bartoli's career, says Freeb. He's talked about how, up until that point, he'd always considered himself the main classics man. Certainly in Liège, no one could really touch him. And then Vandenbrucker pulled his pants down on La Redoute, just toyed with him in the big ring, riding easily away from him. It was the ultimate act of showmanship. It's easy to say now, in hindsight, that it was a foregone conclusion, given how he rode on La Redoute, that he was going to kill everyone on Saint-Nicolas. Vandenbrucker, of course, had no real choice but to ease up following La Redoute. After all, he was still a good 25 kilometres away from house number 256. Before the next climb of Spearmont, Vandenbrucker was back with an 18-man group that included his cofferdist teammate Peter Farazine and all the big names, with the exception of Jalabert, who had thrown in the towel following his earlier move, and André Schmiel, who was then the current World Cup leader. The race entered a fluid phase with numerous splits and reformations following a flurry of attacks, which, at one moment, saw Vandenbrucker, Bartoli and Bogard all dropped before re-entering the fray with 20 kilometres remaining. By now, the leading group was down to 10 men, but grew back to 18 strong on the Côte de Sartilman. While Vandenbrucker and Farazine discussed options, workhorse Bettini was sacrificing himself for Bartoli on the front before zipping clear. Marco Velo then made a move near the summit, but Farazine managed to marshal the attacks. There's no favourite at all in this group, said Liggett. Sherwin agreed. It's hard to pick a winner. Hitting the Côte de Saint-Nicolas, a claustrophobic 1.2-kilometre climb that twists past terraced housing at an average gradient of 10%, Farazine set tempo for Vandenbrucker ahead of some half-hearted digs from Bettini, Rebelin and Kamenzind. But it was Bogard who made the first big move, darting clear to sweep past Bartoli with Vandenbrucker on his wheel. Here, on the deciding climb, the Dutchman felt he was finally going to win his favourite classic. But I was brutally put in my place, he would later recall. I was riding great, 
but he just couldn't be kept down. Vandenbrucker rode in Bogard's back wheel for around 100 metres, as if weighing up his options. Then, as they swung round a sweeping bend, the Belgians switched down from the hoods to the drops before putting in a big out-of-the-saddle acceleration amid the motorcycles, instantly distancing the Dutch champion. It was more like house number 252 where he launched his attack, which is 200 metres earlier than 256, says McGrath. But I don't think we can really hold that against him, can we? Vandenbrucker stayed out of the saddle for the rest of the climb. By the time he settled down into a time trial position going over the summit, his gap was 10 seconds. There was never any doubt once Bogard was distanced. Vandenbrucker had already won a time trial that year in Japan. All he needed to do now was keep powering to the finish. He extended his lead on the final uphill dig in arms before savouring his win on the long home straight. One last look around for Frankie Vandenbrucker ahead of what will be a great victory, said Liggett in the commentary box. He really is becoming the star of Belgian cycling. And I think they're right. He might well have the ability of Eddie Merckx. Vandenbrucker won in just over 6 hours and 25 minutes at a record average pace of 41.1 kilometres per hour. Bogard would hold on for second place at 30 seconds down before his compatriot and teammate Dan Bakker completed the podium at 41 seconds. Mapai's Italian duo Bartoli and Bettini completed the top five. For me, it's a dream that's come true, Vandenbrucker said moments later, sitting back against the fence as if he were sitting on the beach. It's something a bike rider always thinks about. Having done this after riding Paris-Roubaix is a pretty good performance. He then smirked before a soigneur reached across to tell down his face. It's the perfect day. I imagined it happening, but it's still a dream come true. And, with another shrug of the shoulders from the new World Cup leader, it was left to Phil Liggett to summarise and sign off. Well, a marvellous race this has been. It was the fastest on record. We hope you've enjoyed this one, because this is one for the archives. Liggett wasn't wrong. Vandenbrucker's victory remains to this day one of the most perfect all-round displays in Liège history. And at the time, it would have been absolutely inconceivable. Absurd, even, to consider that this would be the fresh-faced aces' last-ever Classics win. Echoing Liggett, and pretty much the entire Belgian media at the time, McGrath says, it was the closest to the second coming of Eddie Merckx. People justifiably thought that this guy was going to be a champion for years and years and years. What stood out for McGrath wasn't so much Vandenbrucker delivering on his promise of winning, but the grace and beauty of the way he did it. That's what really chimed with a lot of people, says McGrath. It wasn't just the dominant and astute tactical performance. It was the fact that he had those long legs, the perched position, even the beautiful colour scheme. It was just poetry in motion. From Vandenbrucker's height to his choice in garish footwear, Freeb shares McGrath's sentiment about his artistry and allure. One of the most striking things about Vandenbrucker was just how graceful he was on a bike. He had those incredible long legs and that incredible power without seeming to strain. The attack on La Redoute was certainly in that vein. On San Nicolas, he muscled the bike a little bit more. Then, the way he rode to the finish was just very beautiful. With those overshoes which accentuated the length of his calves, he didn't look like anyone else on a bike. He was like a high jumper. So, what happened next? Victory in Liège would prove the pinnacle of Vandenbrucker's career. 
Following the win, he drove back to his hometown of Plogstedt on the French-Belgian border for a massive knees-up with his friends, family, teammates and the local community. Being very much the village lad who grew up living above a bar, the celebrations were almost as impressive as his attack on La Redoute. One of his Cofidis teammates told McGrath that Vandenbrucker stayed up for two or three days straight, hardly the best preparation for defending his World Cup lead at the following weekend's Amstel Gold Race. Here, Michael Bogard finally got his win, edging Lance Armstrong on the line by a matter of millimetres as a bleary-eyed Vandenbrucker finished 25th. This would be his last race for four months. A few weeks later, Vandenbrucker sat in a jail cell in the Quai des Favre in Paris, France's answer to Scotland Yard, where he'd been taken with French teammate Philippe Gaumont, his terrible twin at Cofidis, for questioning following their connection with Bernard Sands, the infamous Dr Mabuse. Although he was cleared by the courts, it was the start of the end. But there was still one last hurrah. Having served out an internal suspension at Cofidis, Vandenbrucker returned for the Vuelta Espana that August and rode out of his skin, winning two stages, coming 12th on GC and taking the points jersey. He always says that the Vuelta in 99 was the worst thing that ever happened to him because he was just so superior, says Freib. His victories in Spain came days after he was introduced to the Italian model Sara Pinacci, for whom he promptly left his partner and their newborn daughter to pursue a tumultuous relationship which did him no favours. In a 2007 documentary about his performance in the 1999 Vuelta, Vandenbrucker said, I was like an extraterrestrial. Maybe that was the drama. It was all too easy. That caused me a lot of problems later. The doping allegations and subsequent suspension that followed Liège-Baston-Liège certainly cast Vandenbrucker's Vuelta performances in a different light. By the time the World Championships at Verona came around, Vandenbrucker was back to his old tricks, predicting he could win the rainbow bands by a few minutes. But that never happened. Spain's Oscar Freire won the first of his three gold medals, with Vandenbrucker coming seventh despite fracturing both hands in a crash. Those two Vuelta triumphs would prove the last in Vandenbrucker's career, which dragged on for another decade and was peppered with comebacks. Contractually obliged to stay with Cofidis, Vandenbrucker went through the motions in the year 2000 with people talking more about his nights out than his once elegant riding. He didn't even bother defending his Liège crown, with Paolo Bettini taking the win the following year. It would be another decade before Belgium tasted success again in La Doyenne, with Philippe Gilbert in 2011. By the time this happened, Vandenbrucker was no longer with us. His downfall was pretty swift, harsh and unexpected, says McGrath. No one would have thought he would have been dead pretty much within 10 years of his Liège win. It was a great sporting sadness, but there's an even more tragic human story behind it. In his autobiography, Vandenbrucker referred to his move to Cofidis and his relationship with teammate Gomon as the catalyst for his self-destruction and the start of what he referred to as his fall to hell. It was at Cofidis which was found to have a semi-institutionalised problem with the use of sleeping pills and amphetamines at the time, where VDB, as he was nicknamed, really went off the rails. Vandenbrucker's family always felt he was led astray by Gomon, who introduced him to sleeping pill and alcohol cocktails, as well as to the homeopathic shaman Sands, who became VDB's guru and secondary father figure. Later on, it was Gomon's confessions of drug-taking that led to the so-called Cofidis scandal 
and that, in 2004, led to the two-year ban of British rider David Miller. In hindsight, says McGrath, Cofferdis was not a good team for him to go to. Vanderbrucker kowtowed to no one and nobody appears to have managed him or had any authority over him. Sleeping pills mixed with alcohol led to some very sorry nights in 99 and some very dodgy nocturnal activities for some riders on training camps and at team hotels. He was always going to burn out on that team. It was just a matter of when. Like Jan Ulrich's Tour de France victory in 1997, before the wool was pulled away from everyone's eyes, Freeb looks back at the 1999 edition of Liège as both mesmerising and grotesque. He views VDB's subsequent links to the notorious Bernard Sands as a wow moment for everyone in their naivety. As far as I'm concerned, says Freeb, 1999 was the king of a halcyon age for Liège. It was certainly the last days of Rome as far as the race was concerned. Two years later, Vandenbrucker was caught speeding on a Belgian motorway with Dr Mabuse in the passenger seat and Pandora's box was opened. A raid on his house resulted in the discovery of various drugs that the cyclist claimed were for his dog. In 2004, Vandenbrucker finally admitted to having taken growth hormones, EPO, amphetamines, morphine and steroids. By this point, he was already on his fourth new team since leaving Cofidis. While he did come second behind Peter van Pietegem in the 2003 Tour of Flanders, VDB's races were becoming fewer and farther between. A succession of managers were unable to get Vandenbrucker back to anywhere near his best. He certainly always believed that he still had that quality in him, even in the very last years of his life, says McGrath. But as you go into the mid-noughties, he was really one of the last people that thought that. His constant comebacks and middling results kind of made him a bit of a laughingstock. Off the bike, too, Vandenbrucker's life was a mess. He had married Italian model Panacci, but in the wake of numerous splits, she finally left him after one of their regular tiffs ended with him firing a gun into the air. He allegedly tried to commit suicide twice, in 2004 and 2007, and once, during a ban, he allegedly tried to ride in an Italian Grand Fondo while using a fake licence with a photo of Tom Bonin. An ongoing knee injury ended his last attempt at riding the Giro in 2007. Then, in October 2009, while on holiday in Senegal, he was found dead in his hotel room in a case remarkably similar to that of his late friend Marco Pantani. An autopsy showed that he had died of a pulmonary embolism, with conflicting reports indicating drugs were found by his bedside. Four years later, Gaumont died after a major heart attack. The question remains, how far could Vandenbrucker have gone? Freeb does not hold back on what could have been after Vandenbrucker's stunning breakthrough win. He was someone who could presumably have won every major classic, including Roubaix. I've said this to people before and they've poo-pooed it, but I felt he could have possibly won the Tour de France. The age was the first time he had been fully emancipated and it was almost as if his career was just starting. He certainly felt that those days, the Vuelta certainly, but I imagine also Liège, it was such an intense sensation of euphoria, both physical and psychological, that it became a massive issue for him thereafter because his whole life was a despairing, desperate attempt to reach the same heights, which was ultimately impossible. He wrestled with that for years while also wrestling with the addictions that had taken root. It set him up for a fall. The sense that the only way was down is shared by McGrath, 
who draws a comparison between the Belgian's emphatically age win and the way in which another 24-year-old rising star took cycling by storm in 2019. Once you have dominated a race like that, where do you go from there? It's a bit like Mathieu van der Poel, for I don't think we'll ever see anything like the monumental performance he put in at the Amstel Gold Race in 2019, for various reasons. But essentially, because he'll be so well marked, and people will think he's so strong, that they'll never let him race quite like that ever again. Vandenbroeke's plight is something that the current Belgian rider widely touted as the new Merck should also heed, according to McGrath. Remco Evanapol should read Vandenbroeke's book because the intensity of Belgian cycling, where any failure is blown up in a fishbowl, is absurd, he says. There is too much pressure. 20 years ago, they were talking about the next Eddie Merckx just as they are today. But come on, guys, there's never going to be another Merckx. I just hope Remco has a long and happy career. Happy being as important as successful. For McGrath, Vandenbroeke's greatest achievement will always be the way he threw down the hammer on La Redoute. It was just the ease of it, the effortlessness of it. You just don't see that now, and there's reasons for that. It was beautiful, but it was flawed as well. It was symptomatic of the era. Something beautiful, but something illegal at the same time. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos and you will find podcast Pete very agreeable. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Join us for our next episode when we're climbing Mount Etna for the first time in Giro d'Italia history. We go back to the seventh stage of the 1967 race and Italy's Franco Bitozzi, a climber known as Crazy Heart, is the explosive rider on the up and up. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.